Before we get into Psalm 2, let me just say this way of introduction. The theme of Psalm 2 is kiss the sun. Now, in throughout history, there have been three kinds of kisses. And by the way, the definition of the Old English word kiss has to do with a physical greeting. The New Testament teaches us to greet the brethren with a holy kiss when you shook hands with one another. This morning, you were doing that as a physical greeting. That's the way it's normally done in our culture, United States, Canada, and so forth. Not the way it's done in culture everywhere. And um, when I, I preached in Syria for a week, God bless those dear, wonderful Arab Christians. They do things every day that we would consider heroic if we did them once. But they're all bearded, and they tend to have these wiry beards. And it is their custom, if they like your message... They have to kiss you on the cheek afterwards. The men do. And when they kiss one another on the cheek, it's not really a big deal because their wiry beard sort of serves as a barrier to the other person's wiry beard and everybody comes out, comes out all right. As you've noticed, I don't have a beard. And uh, I had little streaks of blood all over both cheeks after the first service. After that, I would put lotion on before the start of the service, you know, to prevent that. But that, that's their idea of greeting the brethren with a holy kiss. But three kinds of kisses. There's a passionate kiss, of course. There is the kiss of affection and the kiss of submission. When you see somebody kissing the Pope's ring, that, that's a sign of submission in the Roman Catholic Church. It was common in past, it's not common now, but it was common in the past for kings and emperors to require people who would have to kiss their ring. Okay. Well, this is about, this psalm is about kissing the sun, and I think here it is a kiss of submission. It is about recognizing who the sun is and the role that he plays. Well, we begin in Psalm 2 and verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. I mean, this world is one conspiracy after another after another against God. Just an example. The Tower of Babel comes after the time of the flood. It's discussed in secular history as well as in the Bible. Secular history tells us that the man Nimrod, who's discussed in the Bible as leading a rebellion against God, is the man behind the Tower of Babel. And secular history tells us, as the Bible does, he wanted to build this tower to heaven. Men were going to go to heaven in defiance of God. But secular history tells us that he promised men the tower would be waterproof. See, they'd just been through this little flood that covered the whole earth and destroyed an entire civilization in rebellion against God. And he promised them he had found a way that we can rebel against God and get away with it. We'll go to heaven on our own, in our own power, and in our own strength. And, and well, we don't care if God sends another flood. Our tower to heaven is going to be waterproof. Okay. You ever calculate what something like that would take? I think he underestimated how high the tower was going to be. 
you, you can actually see the foundation of the Tower of Babylon in Iraq today. And people have calculated what kind of a tower you could build on that and, and that it could go several hundred feet in the air. You know, it'd be about like a 20-story building today. Would fall a little bit short of heaven. And it'd be interesting to know how they were going to make that waterproof so that it would stand up against a flood that could cover the whole earth. And uh, if you look at verse 4, the very next thing God, God tells us, He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. I mean, men's conspiracies against God are funny. I don't mean to belittle the damage that's done, but just the idea that men would overthrow God is funny. Many years ago, I'm age 20. I'm a Bible college student. I'm working at a Christian camp. I think Christian camp's a wonderful ministry. I think Bible college is a great, great thing for young people who've been called to serve the Lord. I was called to serve the Lord, and I knew it. And I was in training in Bible college, and I spent the summers working at a Christian camp. And there we had a little 10-year-old guy at camp that had serious problems. He was only 10, but he literally hated females. He was just constantly throwing punches at the little girls. So we told him we were going to have to send him home, and I was supposed to wait with him until we made the arrangements, and he was angry. So he decided he would whip me as a 20-year-old college boy. And so he started throwing punches at me. So I put my hand on his face, and of course my arm is considerably longer than his arms. So he just went, (laughs) and he can't touch me. And as he's throwing punches at me, I found it funny. So I started laughing at him. And the more I laughed at him, the angrier he got. And the angrier he got, the harder he threw the punches. But they still didn't hit me. And, and so the wilder he got while throwing punches, the more I laughed. The more I laughed, the wilder he got. But, but I really wasn't the least bit concerned that he was going to whip me. I wonder what it's like when God looks at men and men are conspiring to overthrow him. A lot of conspiracies against God. You read Ezekiel chapter 8. And God gave Ezekiel a vision, let him see in the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple in Jerusalem, the very people leading the worship of the Lord, were actually worshiping pagan gods and conspiring against the Lord. That worked out really well for them, didn't it? It wasn't long until they were all carried away. Islam is a conspiracy against the Creator God. I need to say this carefully. Islam uses the historic word for the Creator God. But they have applied it to the moon God. And it's it's virtually saying, we will change who the God of the universe is. From Jehovah to the moon God. And they've had moments that earthly wise would appear as a great success. But they're still not going to reign in triumph. They flourish for a while and fall back and flourish and fall back and flourish and fall back. Communism was an effort to overthrow the idea of God. And they they attributed every one of man's problems to the influence of the idea of God. Trotsky, who was one of the co-founders of communism, said he did not believe there was a God. He did not believe there was an afterlife. But if he died and discovered there was an afterlife and there was a God, he would take an axe and split Jehovah's skull. 
I'm pretty sure that's not how the afterlife worked out for him. It's a conspiracy against God. I could go on and on, and I will tell you without the slightest bit of apology, much of what we hear today from political folks on both sides of our national border, much of what we hear from political folks is nothing less than a conspiracy against God. God laughs. Verse 5. Here's the next stage. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. When God gets done laughing at the conspiracies of men, he judges the conspiracies of men. And boy, that's a tough moment. But by the way, the Tower of Babel was built on the concept of Babylon, which would become a, a nation headed by a city. And we see it over and over again in the Bible. But you haven't seen the ambassador from Babylon on TV lately. And you've never seen the soccer team from Babylon in the World Cup. Because Babylon no longer exists. Saddam Hussein had as one of his great goals rebuilding Babylon. He'd even marked out geographically, had people mark it out where they thought Babylon had been. And and if you were going to recreate Babylon, where would you put it and what would you do with it? And, And that was one of the great goals of his life. As you might have noticed, that never worked out right. Babylon will be created in the tribulation period, but only to be destroyed yet again. I'm just telling you, when the day comes that God is done laughing at the conspiracies of men, God judges the conspiracies of men. And then he declares something. Verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. One day, God the Father is sending God the Son, sending the Lord Jesus back to this earth. Bible describes it. He'll set foot on Zion. He'll come from heaven. It'll be a moment of, at the end, I believe, of a seven-year judgment of tribulation. It'll be a moment of judgment of the whole rebellious earth. It'll be a moment described in Revelation 19 as an incredible moment. If I read the Bible right, those of us that know the Lord will be there. The Bible says armies will descend with Him from heaven. It's plural. And, And this is my explanation of the word armies. The Old Testament saints are coming. The New Testament saints, that would be you and me, are coming. We'll be on white horses, dressed as if we were dressed for battle, but we won't have to fight. We won't be needed. And the tribulation saints are coming. That'd be armies. And going to return to this earth. But when the Lord says the Lord Jesus is returning to stand on Zion, the armies of the world will gather to stop him. And and guess how much fighting it will take. He'll speak a word. The armies of the world will have gathered in the valley of Megiddo in Israel. The armies of the, uh, of the Antichrist will have gathered there to oppose the return of the Lord. But when the, God the Father says the Lord Jesus is returning, guess what's happened? The Lord Jesus is returning. And he will speak a word. And the armies of the Antichrist virtually melt. And the Bible says the valley of Megiddo will be filled with blood like a river deep enough up to the horse's bridles. 
See, when the Lord says Jesus is coming, you can count on this. Jesus is coming. End of the story. Nobody can stop him. Nobody can slow it down. Nobody can be in his way. And not only that, when, when the Lord comes, he'll establish a government, I believe according to the book of Revelation, that will exist over this earth for a thousand years. Nobody will be able to stop him. Look at verse 9. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. When the Lord comes to take over, he will simply take over. He is the Lord. We're supposed to remember who he is, who we're dealing with, and, and what we're, what's going on in the world around us. Sometimes we see the depth of the spread of wickedness in our world. And somebody said, how much worse could it get? How are things out of control? Trust me, they're under control and God has his own schedule and God is going to do what he chooses to do when he chooses to do it. Now that's prophecy. There's also a very practical application of it for right now. Look with me in verse 10. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. There's two applications there. Here's the first one. Kings, judges, rulers, presidents, prime ministers, governors... Earthly people in authority of all kinds should get a hold of this today. That he's God and we should be submissive to him. Doesn't matter what earthly position a person has. He's still God. Every king, president, prime minister is going to answer to the God of heaven for the things they do and the decisions they make. Every judge in a courtroom is going to answer to the king of heaven for the decisions they make. Some years ago, I, I was sitting in the audience, thankfully, but in audience in a federal court trial in the United States. It was a trial uh, involving a preacher, and it had some church-state ramifications. And they were going through the process of selecting the jury. Excuse me. And the two attorneys had agreed on 12 jurors and two alternates. That's the process in the United States. But after they had agreed and the people were sitting in the jury box, the judge said, now, I want to ask a question before the trial starts. She looked at the jurors. She said, is there anybody in this jury that thinks there is a higher authority in this courtroom than me? Utterly black man raised his hand. He said, ma'am, he said, God's the highest authority in this courtroom. And you're answerable to him. Besides that, the United States Constitution is a higher authority than you are in this courtroom. She dismissed him from the jury. I wanted to say amen, but I don't think you're allowed to say that in, in courtrooms. Kiss the sun. You know, understand who's in charge? 
when I was in Florida with a Bible college, with a wonderful Bible college in northern Illinois now, and, and I know you've recently had one of the music groups here, and, and uh, we'd be delighted to see some of your young people come our way. We'd do a good job getting them ready for the Lord's work. But I was with a Bible college in Florida for years, and I had not, no more than got to the state of Florida than the state of Florida passed a law that said it's illegal to have the kind of Bible college that I believe is necessary to train people for Lord's work. Tragically, that kind of law exists in 27 of the 50 states in the United States. Well, they just passed it in Florida right after I got there. I thought, what a wonderful green. And um, it was my position that we had to fight that law, that it was unconstitutional, unbiblical, unjust. And so we got in a process of fighting it. And by the grace of God, we fought for five years, and the Florida State Legislature passed a new law. I had the privilege of writing the law. The law says, if your college has a religious name, a clear religious purpose, and you don't take government money, you're not under the jurisdiction of the state. That's the way it should be. But in the middle of that fight, we've been going on for some time, and we're fighting the Commission for Independent Colleges in Florida. I mean, it's a serious battle. They're wanting to put us in jail, and we're, we're opposing the laws being unconstitutional, and, and it's a very serious matter. And in the course of things, the commissioner uh, resigned for health reasons. And the governor appointed a new commissioner. He was from the same little town that our college was in. Not only that, he was from the Presbyterian church I was telling you about, that we had bought their property. And he negotiated for the Presbyterian church while I negotiated for the college. We had spent hours together. So I read in the newspaper he'd been appointed to commissioner. I was amazed. I called him and asked if we could congratulate him. I said, by the way, did anybody tell you? Have you been to the office yet in Tallahassee? He said, yes, I've been there once. And he said, did anybody tell you that you're in a legal battle with us and that your commission is threatening to put us in jail and we're trying to get your commission's authority overthrown? He said, no, nobody mentioned that. I said, can we sit down and talk? So he came over to the college and we went through it. And I'll never forget, as long as I live, he stood up and looked at me and he said, I want you to know something. He said, I am a Christian before I am a politician. He said, I will never enforce this or any other law against the church. And he said, as long as I'm the commissioner, you don't have to worry about the, uh, this being enforced. And he said, I will help you lobby the state legislature to change the law. By the way, that changed everything. You're trying to go in and talk to state legislators and explain why this is a problem and we're fighting the commission and, and getting them to listen to you is hard. When the chairman of the commission you're fighting goes in with you and says, we're on their side, we want them to beat our law and our commission. All of a sudden, you get people's attention. It was an amazing thing. But I'll never forget him saying, I'm a Christian first. Several years ago, I went to see a court case in the state of Indiana, and uh, in, in, it's a funny thing. In the United States, uh, churches are tax-exempt, but, but politicians keep forgetting that here and there. And in this county, they were trying to charge property tax on the church, which is blatantly illegal, but they were trying it anyway. And the county was suing the church, and it's actually in court. So they're having a trial, and several of us preachers, several preachers went, uh, to the case out of support for the church. And, and the judge did something I've never seen before. After he heard the arguments from both sides, he said, I see there are a number of preachers here today. He said, I want to take a 15-minute break. I want you preachers to pick three people 
And then you tell me why you came to this, why this was important to you. I was shocked. And they asked me to be one of the folks, and we, we each got to speak for five minutes and explain this and why it was important. And, and when I was, we were done, the uh, judge looked at us all. And he said, I do not want to be the judge that made the decision to tax a church. He said, I don't want to answer to God for that. Well, Psalm 2. Judges, kings, rulers, princes, governors, prime ministers, presidents ought to understand this. They're going to answer to God for what they do. I want you to know something else. End of verse 12. Blessed are all they that put their trust in Him. See, this is the right lesson for judges. Kiss the Son. Acknowledge His authority. Recognize who's in charge. But, but it's not just for judges and kings and so forth. This is the right lesson for all. All would include you and me. Who's in charge? Who's the authority here? Whose world is it? Some years ago when I was pastoring, first church I pastored, church was in real trouble when I took it. It was down to about 20 people. It was in financial trouble behind on all the bills and just a lot of things going bad. I worked as hard as I could and try and get the thing in, in good shape. And we were going well. Then we had a blizzard one weekend. And you couldn't have service. Meant, meant nobody was in church. Meant no offering. And being in the Midwest, the snow all melted during a the week. Then the next weekend we had another blizzard. Couldn't have church. No offerings. Being Midwest, it all melted. But the next weekend, we had another blizzard. We had drifts higher than the church building. I was feeling terrible. I went to see the pastor under whom I was saved, and I sort of complained about things. And he said, Phil, I'd like to ask you three questions. He said, number one, whose church is it? It's the Lord's. He said, whose snow is it? It's the Lord's. He said, if the Lord wants to dump His snow on His church, whose business is it? It's the Lord's. 2015, I'm pastoring in Indianapolis. Sorry, 2014. I'm pastoring in Chicago, 2014. We had snow 17 weekends in a row. It messed up our church more ways than you keep track of. And I'm talking to the deacons. The deacons are talking about how hard this was on us, all this weather. And I said, men, let me ask you three questions. You can all guess the three questions. They thought I was wise and profound. <laughs> I didn't tell them where I got those questions from. I'm going to tell you something. You get a hold of this. He's in charge. Kiss the sun. Submit to His authority. If you hear and never trusted Christ as your Savior, it is the Lord Jesus. And the plan of salvation that He gives us is the way that people find the way, their way to heaven. Kiss the Son. If you're here as a child of God, and there is in your life rebellion against what you know is the revealed will of God, kiss the Son. Know who to submit to. 
If you're here this morning and the Lord speaks to your heart, do not miss this moment. If you were the President of the United States, I'd say the same thing. If you were the Prime Minister of Canada, I could say the same thing. If you were a senator or a congressman or a judge or a governor of a province or a state, I could say the same thing. Kiss the Son. Submit yourself to the Lord Jesus. He's in charge. He's coming back. He will rule. He will reign. And He is the one you should be submissive to. Kiss the Son.